0: Connection with the church at Rome. I don't even know if he even knows anybody there. He, he doesn't really address anybody specifically. He's he's just kind of sending a letter out to this church that he's heard about. It. He's he's eventually going to spend a lot of time in Rome. Uh, he ends up getting arrested there, uh, imprisoned there twice. Uh, the first time for a couple of years, and then the second time he's ultimately martyred there. But neither of those things has happened yet. And so by the point of this letter's writing, Paul doesn't have much of a connection with Rome, but he's heard a bunch of good things about them and he wants to ask them for help, all right? Um, he wants to ask for them help, for help. In chapter 15 of this letter, Paul's gonna tell them that his plan is to take the gospel on to Spain, somewhere it hadn't been yet. He's in Corinth, Rome is west of there, and Spain is further west from there, and so he sees the Roman church as an ally to help him get to where he believes God is calling him to go. And so he writes this letter to cast a giant vision for why the church in Rome should play a role in what he's doing. Now, I've, I've written several missionary support letters over the years. Some of them I'm even proud of, right? You can take a step back and like, that's a good letter right there. You ever written a letter like that? You, you get done writing the letter, you're like, mm, I'm glad I wrote that. <laughs> oh, you liars. <laughs> of course you have. I've written dozens of letters like that, and some of them are missionary support letters. Um, but Paul's missionary support letter is just on a whole nother level. Paul unfolds a grand logical argument for the global need of the gospel and why God is raising up him and others to take that gospel to the nations, to all peoples. And it's, man, it's an absolute masterpiece, an absolute masterpiece. The picture that we've been trying to to use to wrap our heads around this monstrous thing is that of a skyscraper. You ever seen a skyscraper? Of course you have, right? You've been to New York City or maybe Boston. Boston has smaller skyscrapers but they're still there. Skyscrapers are this massive feat of engineering. You can't just slap a skyscraper together. If you do, things are going to go really, really badly. People are going to get hurt if it ever gets up in the air at all. You don't take your best fishing pole and your tallest ladder and lean them up teepee style and say, skyscraper. There's a plan. There's a system. There's There's a progression from one piece to the next piece, to the next piece, to the next piece. And Paul's logical argument for the gospel in Romans, it's the same deal. He's he's working his way to a desired end, but he's he's getting there slowly as he puts all of these pieces together. He's solidifying each piece as he goes up. And he starts out in chapter 1 of Romans by showing us the bigness. And the goodness and the beauty and the sovereignty of god sovereignty is a word that doesn't get used much in our culture it means to rule over he is lord over all things but then paul immediately turns around and contrasts that sovereignty with our rejection of him Our rejection of the king as as creatures, we have rebelled against the good, wise, creator, king. And to use Paul's own language, that all men are without excuse. All men are without excuse. The Bible teaches that God is perfectly just. That he will give to all. You, me, the neighbor next door that you don't know the name of, he will give to all exactly what they deserve. And so this means that all people everywhere rightly deserve the just punishment for sin. The Bible calls that the wrath of God. It's not unfair. It's 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 not mean. It's it's owed to us. It's owed to us. In fact, it's It would be a terrible breach of God's good character for him to withhold his wrath on sinners. It would mean that he's failing to act consistently with who he is. He's failing to act in perfect righteousness and he would somehow therefore be guilty of wrongdoing if he didn't punish sin. And so in in God's kindness, in God's kindness, He gives us the law, a big old long list of do's and don'ts, and that probably sounds backwards to most people, right, like you tend to to have a long list of do's and don'ts and then you break the list and you get in trouble, right? That's, that's how it works. But the reality, the biblical reality, is that we aren't sinners because we broke God's law, we, because we broke his rules. We're sinners because we rejected him as king. And so God gives us his rules to show us um, just how big that separation actually is between us and him. And so through his law, sin, we say, is illuminated. It is revealed to us as sin but it also, at the very same time, elevates and solidifies our sin. See, rebellious hearts, well, we take the opportunity to move from just rebellion into outright transgression. We we see a clear line, and we knowingly and we willingly cross that line to spite him. That's what transgression means. And so a proper understanding of the gospel must, and the word is must, a proper understanding of the gospel must include a proper accounting of who we are, actually are, before a holy God. And so in Romans chapter 5, as Paul is building his skyscraper, he calls us God's enemies. I mean, let's just face it, like you're, you're not really going to hear that out there. Right? It's not exactly the most culturally appropriate message that we're God's enemies. Even, even amongst those who believe in a God, and, and yes, even amongst many of those who claim to worship the God of the Bible, we, we, we tend to think, like I don't know about you, we, we, we tend to think it's just a part of our sinful human nature, but we tend to think that we're pretty awesome. How about yourself? There's something about us that God ought to save. I mean, have you seen me? <laughs> we, we tend to think that there's, that there's something about us, something about me that, that God would actually adore and want more of and need to buddy up next to. The worthiness of God's wrath, that, that doctrine... It's not some vestigial thing of a bygone era. Sweaty preachers in a church slamming their Bibles on the pulpit. It's not some vestigial thing of a bygone era. It's the only thing that actually makes sense in light of the severe heinousness of our sin. It's it's the infinitely appropriate response to our defiance and rejection of him. But here's what's actually crazy, because even while it's that, it's also at the same time, at the very same time, the fuel for an explosion of worship when the good news comes onto the scene. It's it's fuel for something big, because even though we deserve wrath, even though that's what we rightly are owed instead, guys, God loved God, love. This is that amazing grace thing that people like to sing about from time to time. Like, that's the explosion that's being felt in that moment. Are you kidding me? I don't deserve this. What do I do with this? God willingly pursued some of his enemies. He sacrificially died for some of his enemies so that he would forever reconcile himself to some of his enemies. And if you're wondering why I keep using the word some, well, it's because of our text for the morning. It's a text that a lot of people, a lot of people think is hard to understand. Um, It's a text that a lot of pastors throughout the generations, even good friends of mine, uh, it's a a text that a lot of pastors have have been timid to even kind of approach, they're kind of scared of it a little bit. They don't want to preach it. Uh, But here's the deal, it's not it's not because the text is complicated. It's just really not. There there are several places in Romans that that if I'm being uh, honest and I'm standing up here with integrity, I've gotta stand up here and say, well, we think Paul's saying this right? There are places in, the, in Romans that we think my, Paul might be saying this, but he also could be saying this, we think this looks clear, but we just don't know. Like, like we had one of those moments a few months back when we looked at Romans chapter 7. We're going to have another one of those moments in a few weeks when we finally get to Romans chapter 11. But Romans 9 is not one of those places, Romans 9 is different. We don't get squirrely about this text because we're not sure what it says. We, we get weird about this text because sinful human hearts don't really like what it says. And so we tend to buck against it. We ignore it. We come up with creative ways to reframe it as something else because surely, surely it can't be saying what it, what it looks like. It's saying, no, no, that's not, that's not possible. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, let me read for you the first 29 or so verses of the text that we're going to look at this morning. We're going to read it in its entirety, and then we're going to come back and, and then walk through it like we, like we normally do around here. I'm going to be in Romans chapter 9. Um, Paul just got done in chapter 8 celebrating and encouraging his readers by saying that, that, that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, Right? I know it was a month and a half ago, two months ago, but we stood up on this stage and we declared from the mountaintops, Deus pro nobis, right? God is for you. It's a grand celebration of God's goodness and God's bigness and His great love for you. And then in His very next breath, He says this in chapter 9 He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen." Verse 6, but it's not as though the word of God has failed, for, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through, uh, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, he says. Verse 8, this, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, quote, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a, shall have a son. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 17, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So that he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 19, Well, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. I know, right? Verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Okay, so there's a lot in that really long text that we got to process here. I, I get that. I get that. But guys, the first thing that we need to see, the very first thing that we need to point to right out of the gate is that Paul's tone changes. Paul's tone changes. He closes out chapter 8 with an exultant celebration of who God is and what God is doing. He's exploding with joy as he exalts God and his faithful love for his people. But then he gets to verse 1 here, and now he's heartbroken. He's heartbroken. Look at verse 2 again. That I have great sorrow. An unceasing anguish in my heart. Guys, Paul is writing this through tears. Through tears. He's not he's not celebrating anymore. Something has got him in anguish, and and so what's got him so upset? It's the salvation of his kinsmen, his fellow Jews. So I've been telling y'all for a few months now that, that there's this one outside issue that Paul's going to have to address as he crafts his gospel skyscraper. One, one outside thing that he's got to weave into his gospel architecture. And it's, and it's the, the dynamic, the power dynamic that exists between Jewish background Christians and Gentile background Christians in the same Roman church. That's that's the issue he's got to address here. And it's been lying mostly under the surface up until now. There's been a couple of times where it's reared its head a little bit, but it's been mostly under the surface. But over the next three chapters, it's going to be on full display. It's going to come to a massive head in the next three chapters. Why? Because he's got one group of people in this church— who carry a couple of millennia of history and tradition and family lineage, and then he's got this other group over here that doesn't bring one lick of that to the table. And he's put them in the same room. He's made it abundantly clear by this point in the letter that both of these groups of people stand on exactly the same ground before a holy God. Doesn't matter if you bring the couple of millennia or not, you and the Gentile are in the same boat before a holy God. And he's also, at the very same time, got a bunch of Jews outside the church. Once he's actually related to, he calls them family. And they carry the exact same history. And the exact same tradition. And the exact same family lineage. And Paul has made it equally clear that none of those things gain them anything before God nothing, that they are separated from him by default. All men are without excuse, right? They're just like everybody else. It it would be cosmic justice, actually, for them to receive God's wrath, his punishment for sin. It's good and appropriate and right, and the heavens will celebrate it. Guys, this breaks Paul's heart. It breaks Paul's heart. Why? Because there's so many opportunities for them to get it. If any group of people ought to see what's in front of their face, it's the Jews, right? They, they saw the glory of God in the wilderness. They've got the covenants. They've got the law. They've got the patriarchs. They were the privileged ones who were allowed to go into the temple and worship. For goodness sakes, it was from their race that the Christ had come. If any group of people should get it, it's this group. But instead, they rejected him, and they remained separated from God. And Paul is broken by this reality. He's heartbroken by it. And he wishes he could undo this reality. Look at verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul says that he would gladly trade his own salvation if his kinsmen could come to know Jesus. Like he can't actually do that. That's not how it works. It just doesn't work that way at all. So, so Paul can't do this. But like, like, have you ever loved somebody that much? Have you ever come to the point where you're like, Jesus, I'll give up my seat if you'll save them? No one, absolutely no one can read Paul correctly here and come away thinking he's hard-hearted or prideful or just wants to stick it to somebody. No one. He aches for his brother's. Which is why what he says next is absolutely massive. Because no matter how much he hurts, he can't undo this truth. Look at verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son, unquote. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told that older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The the argument in, in Paul's day. That Paul was dealing with here, was that God made a promise to Abraham, right? He he made a promise to Abraham and to Abraham's offsprings, and I can trace my family lineage back to Abraham, thank you much, so I'm a part of that offspring. I'm one of the descendants. God made a promise to Abraham's descendants, and so what belonged to Abraham belongs to me. Paul's not the first guy to deal with this, though. The same thing was said to Jesus by the Pharisees in John chapter 8. If you don't know that story, I'm Jesus says something they don't like, and so in that moment they decide to reject his authority and any authority he claims for himself, and so they puff up their chest, right? So we are descendants of Abraham. Who are you? Jesus in that moment pretty much goes, Well, maybe physically. But if you were spiritual descendants of Abraham, then you would believe God like Abraham did. Therefore, you're not spiritual descendants of Abraham, you're actually sons of the devil. I don't think they like that. Here Paul's dealing with the same thing, same, same logic. You're absolutely right. God did make a promise to Abraham and his descendants, but not every physical descendant of Abraham is a descendant that carried the promise. The promise flowed through Isaac. Hey guys, Abraham had a lot more kids than just Isaac. We even wrote a song about it. Like if you don't know the story, I'm God comes to, to Abraham, and, and, and Abraham's already really old by this point, um, 75. All right, um, but Abraham, God comes to Abraham, and he doesn't have any kids. And so if, you, if you're thinking, and you're past that, well, look at Abraham's story. All right, so Abraham doesn't have any kids. He's 75 years old, and God comes to him, calls him out of idolatry, calls him out of the land of Ur, and says, hey, I'm going to love you, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to give you a giant family. It's a massive promise. Abraham believed him. It was credited to him as righteousness, the Bible says. And then a decade goes by. Abraham doesn't have any kids yet. So what does he and Sarah do? They take take the power in their own hands. They say, ah, we can fix this for him. God needs our help on this. So Sarah presents her servant Hagar. As another wife for Abraham, she conceives, they have a son, they name him Ishmael, right? Ishmael is a physical descendant of Abraham. God made a promise that the physical descendants of Abraham were going to be blessed, right? But the promise flowed through Isaac. Well, 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 you see, Ishmael was conceived through a sinful union. That never should have happened. That's why it doesn't count for him yeah, it was an act of sin. They grossly disobeyed God in that moment. Terrible sin. God doesn't need their help at all. If he wants to give Abraham and Sarah a son, they don't need Hagar in the process. Their idea was problematic from the start, right? God didn't need their help. It was a sinful moment. So that's kind of true, but but then later they have Isaac, and it's an incredible story. We point to it as as a faith story and all these kinds of things. But then one day, Sarah dies. And Abraham remarries another woman named Keturah, right? And Abraham actually has several children with her. That, that union wasn't sinful. That was actually encouraged, but, but the promise didn't flow through those kids either. So it wasn't a sin issue. It was a God said, I'm going to bless this one kid issue. Doesn't matter how many descendants Abraham had, God chose one child to carry the promise he made to Abraham. Go another step up the family tree. And it's the same story, right? Isaac marries a girl. Her name's Rebecca. She has twins, Jacob and Esau, right? Both descendants of Abraham and both even descendants of the child of promise, Isaac, right? But again, God chose the promise would flow through one specific kid. And because God is God, because Psalm 115 says our God is in the heavens and he does all that pleases him, God tells Rebecca that the older was going to serve the younger. An outlandish idea in that culture. You kidding me? It's completely upside down. And it's not because there was something special or important about Jacob. It's not that Esau was the bad guy and Jacob was the good guy. Jacob was a jerk, like an absolute tool. His name means the cheater and he lived up to that name in every single way. Paul tells us though why God chose Jacob over Esau. Look at verse 11. Though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might, be, might continue. I'll read that again for emphasis. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it was written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated simply because God is the one who gets to decide. He's God, Rebecca is not. He's God, neither Jacob nor Esau are. He is God because he is the one who is God, because he is the one who elects. This was the way that he chose for it to go. And I think probably most people can kind of get behind that, like, well, sure, it's God's story. He can decide to raise up one and not another. He gets to choose who the major players are if he wants to use Jacob instead of Esau. What a great story. God chose the one we never expect. Woo! But it, it's that last line where all the yeah buts begin to come flooding in. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated? God, God hated him? Well, well, you see, like he, hate doesn't really mean hate. It really means that God loved G, J, uh, Jacob so much more than Esau that it just looked like hate in comparison. Okay. I, I've heard that argument too. It's not perfect. It, it's, it's not a. It's not the best answer. But I can actually get behind that in in some ways. Um, but the question remains. the The question remains. Um. How How does God love one and hate the other? Even if it's. An immense love versus a a lesser love. How does God love one and hate the other? Like, what did that actually look like on a day-to-day basis? And, And maybe most importantly of all, like, what about after they each died? I could rephrase that question a little bit differently and say it in a much more startling way. Is Esau in hell right now because Jacob was loved and he wasn't? And this, guys, this is why this chapter of the Bible has led to all kinds of attempts to either push it to the side and ignore or desperately try to explain in a way what Paul appears to be saying here. Like, what do we do with this? And so some have come in and said, well, well, he's not actually talking about individuals here. He's talking about nations. See, see Jacob represents Israel and Esau represents the Arabs or, or some other people group or maybe all the people groups or whatever, just Israel and somebody else, right? And so we're talking about nations here. And so God, uh, um, I mean, go down to the Christian bookstore, pick up six copies of a, a Romans commentary, and three of them are going to offer that up as the argument for this verse. I've got a few on my shelf. But the problem with this attempt at a solution is that it doesn't actually solve the problem. It just punts a little bit. Waits for the next person to try to solve the problem. Even if we are talking about nations instead of people now, those nations, well, they include individuals. And those individuals will either go to heaven or hell. So it doesn't answer our question. And so that's, like, it would undo everything that Paul's been saying in chapters 1 through 8 so far to argue that all of Israel is saved and none of the Arabs are, right? Like, does that that sound backwards to you? It's definitely not what Paul has said up until this point. Which has led some others to come and say, well, well, Paul's not talking about salvation here. He's talking about earthly blessings. He's talking about temporary things, not eternal things. He's saying that the Jews will have access to earthly promise, but that promise is just a temporary thing, and it doesn't, it's not included to other people. It doesn't include eternal things like heaven and hell, which I guess gets them out of answering a really difficult question. But I'll just be honest with you, I don't think I don't think, just, I don't know Paul all that well. I just know him through reading about him and of him and his works. But I don't think Paul is going to be in anguish and heartbroken and longing to fix the situation and longing to trade his own salvation for somebody else's temporary blessing. I don't think that's what's got him heartbroken here. There's a third option. It gets offered up significantly more often, though. It's called the prescient view. Lots and lots of Bible-loving Christians would ascribe to this view whether they know it or not. Maybe you do too. I have lots of good friends who think that this is the answer to the question. And so this view argues that that what happened was that God looked down through the corridors of time, looked forward in time and saw which of Isaac's kids was going to return to him. Yes, there was sin. Yes, there was a hard heart. But one day, oh, one day later on in Jacob's life, he was going to come around. He was going to repent. He was going to return to the Lord. And so that is why Jacob, cho- or God chose Jacob over Esau, because God knew, because he's smart like that, God knew he would choose him first. The prescient, view, the prescient view starts here, but it very quickly turns into how all people are saved. And so all Christians are chosen by God because he already knows who will choose them. He's smart like that. And theologically speaking, God does know. Like he doesn't not know. That's not untrue. God does know the future, but, uh, but we can do better than that. We can do a lot better than that. So God created time himself, right? Like he, he's, it was his idea. He exists outside of it. And so the future is not something he just knows about. It's not because he's got like some crystal ball medium kind of thing going on. No, the future is somewhere he actually already is. He's there. The, the, he can see and he can know. But it's not just seeing and knowing. No, he actively rules over it. And to use a theological vocabulary here, God has an active knowledge of the future, not just a prescient knowledge of the future. He's bigger than just mediums here. He's bigger than just being smart enough to know what's about to happen he actively rules over everything that is to come. The, the problem with the prescient view is it's, it's nowhere in the text. Not, not one bit. It's not even really anywhere else in the Bible either, but it's certainly nowhere here. In fact, it's the exact opposite of what Paul actually said the exact opposite. It's it's drummed up out of thin air as an attempt to wedge a more pleasing answer into what people think are holes in Paul's logic, and they got to be holes, right? Because if if, are, if they if they aren't holes, if we just accept what Paul is saying at face value, well, then that means that God chooses some and not others for no other reason but because He's God and that's what He wanted to do. Surely they're holes, right? Surely, they, they gotta be holes. Paul's logic, if we flesh this out in its entirety, Paul's logic means that I'm not the master of my own fate in any way, shape, or form. I'm not the one with final control. In fact, I don't ha- really have any control at all. What, is, what this ultimately means, what this really ultimately means is I am completely and 100% beholden to God instead of the other way around. God's decision-making It's not bound by me in any way. It's not bound by the decisions I make. Or, listen, anything at all that is external to himself. There's no influence upon him that can change his mind. He is God. And no one else gets to try to claim that title for themselves, especially tiny little Stephen Woodard. Especially me. There's nothing in me or about me that can force his hand. He is the one in full control. And and just like Paul has done so many times before throughout this letter, he answers what's probably your very next question before you even have time to ask it. Look at verse 14 again. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. He's he's shouting there. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy, uh, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, excuse me. All right, Paul points to two stories in the Exodus, right? The first one is at the end of the Exodus, after they left Egypt. All right, Uh, it's in uh, chapter 33 of Exodus, if you want to go back and read it at home later. Moses is at the tent of meeting. They're at the base of Sinai. Uh, They're about to get the rules. They're about to get the law, all this kind of stuff. Or Well, there's there's an interplay there. All right, but... uh, Moses is at the tent of meeting at the base of Sinai, and he asks God to see some of his glory. Like Moses like, he just kind of takes a step out there. He's like, God, can I see you? Maybe, is that a question you've ever asked him? And what does God do? He says, well, you can't see my face because no man can see my face and live, but I'll let you see a little bit of my back. Right? God lets him see some of his glory and then Charlton Heston comes down on the mountain and is washed out, right? You've seen the movie. In that encounter, before God lets him see his glory, Moses makes a comment that leaves God impressed. He makes a comment and says that the only thing that makes the Israelites special is because they have God with them. Like, like there's, this, there's this dialogue about, hey, you go here, I'm going to go here, we're going to separate ourselves into Moses. Like, no, 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 no please don't do that. If, if you go, if you're not here, there's nothing, anything special about us. We are no different from all the other people's. The only thing that makes us special is that you are here with us. And God goes, you're right. I am. And in that moment, God says, I will have mercy on whom I choose to have mercy. In other words, you're absolutely right. I do this because I'm good, not because I owe you something or anybody else anything. It's because I am benevolent. So here you go, Moses, have another treat. I'll let you see a little bit of me. The second Exodus event that Paul points to is the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. It starts in Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7 uh, you get the story of the plagues right <laughs> god sends moses to call the pharaoh to release the israelite slaves like like picture the scenario like yeah, moses has a little bit of background like he's been in the royal family he grew up there for 40 years but he disappeared for another 40 years And then all of a sudden, crazy man Moses comes back and he demands that that a God that you don't worship and that you don't fear, he says that I want your millions of slaves to go free. You're the, the most powerful man on the planet right now, the most powerful man in the most powerful empire, right? He's got slaves doing everything he wants them, needs them to do, and Moses trots in and says, God says, let my people go. How do you respond in that moment? Pharaoh says, no, shocked. I wouldn't be any different, neither would you. And so God sends plague plague after plague after plague after plague after plague after plague until he breaks Pharaoh and Pharaoh relents. And all throughout the Exodus account, you get this interesting back and forth in the text. There's this, there's this play on words that keeps happening. And sometimes it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then there's other times where it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And, and so the question is, who hardened whose heart? Like, who's responsible for that? Paul here in Romans 9, he drills down through all of it. And he points to Exodus chapter 9 where God pretty much tells Pharaoh himself, hey, we're, we're doing this right now. We're having this little back and forth. I gave you that power. I gave you that authority because I intend to use that to show the world how powerful and how authoritative I am. We're doing this right now because I intend to crush your teensy little empire." See, the question of how God hardening versus Pharaoh hardening is an important question. It's not unimportant. I think there is a good answer for that. But the most important question, the question that God wants to answer in Exodus, the question that that Paul wants to answer in Romans 9, the one that ought to be shouted from the rafters is, who is sovereign and Lord over everything? Everything including Egypt. The answer to God's question and Paul's question can be summed up by simply quoting Psalm 115 again. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Because God is God and because Pharaoh is not, God gets to do what God wants to do and Pharaoh is along for the ride. But again, maybe you have new questions that spring up out of that think I would too right so our great gospel logician is still looking out for you and so look what he says next in verse 19 you will say to me then well why does he still find fault for who can resist his will so if even the great pharaoh of Egypt was raised up and torn down for God's purposes by his decree then well how then could any of us ever rightly be held liable for doing what God has decreed? That doesn't seem fair. And and this question, guys, has stumbled. It's caused all kinds of people to stumble over the last 2,000 years. Ever since Paul wrote this, people are going, wait, what? It's caused some to leave the church while others invent entire systems of theology to try to deal with it, while others really just prefer that we stop talking about this and move on to something a little cheerier if god really does legitimately does all and only what he pleases is he right to find fault with us it's a massive question And while many have stumbled over the answer to the question, while some have ignored it and while some have run away from it, there's a lot of other people who have genuinely tried to faithfully answer it. I've got lots of friends in that camp. I've been in that camp. The apostle Paul, though, thinks that the question itself is rooted in something dangerous. And so look at his answer in verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Even us, whom he he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Paul's answer to this absolutely massive question is, how dare you ask such a thing? Which I'm sure is not the most polite answer for some of you. I'm sure some of you are probably very frustrated with such an answer. No, 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 you didn't answer my question, Paul. It's not because Paul is scared of the question. And it's not because he doesn't have an answer. I think he has a great answer. Paul answers this way because he knows that, guys, that we ask this question for the wrong reason. See, whether we want to fess up to it or not, the question is actually rooted in a sense of judgment over God. As if we could somehow put him on trial for not ruling in the fashion that we would prefer. How dare you! do such a thing the question in in a vacuum in in a vacuum is is an innocent question and has a great answer but the question doesn't exist in a vacuum and Paul knows it he sees right through us he reads us like a book and it, it comes out of a sinful human heart that's been looking for ways to put God on trial ever since the garden Ever since a serpent slithered slithered up to Adam and Eve and said, God's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to be happy. He doesn't want you to be like him. We have been looking for way after way after way ever since that moment to knock him off of the throne and put ourselves on it. Ever since that moment. This is the core level reality that causes us to shake our fists at the heavens anytime we don't like what God did. There's nothing new under the sun here. As if we could somehow play the role of God better than Him. You really think you got it in you? Hey, just let me have a crack at it, God. I can handle this. You take a rest. You obviously need it. I got this. Right. So Paul paints us a little picture. Shall what is molded say to the potter? Right. Guys, clay has no rights. I don't know if you know that. Just just clay. It would remain an inanimate lump of clay if the potter hadn't come in, stepped in to create something wonderful, right? The potter owns the clay. The potter owns the wheel. The potter owns the kiln. The potter owns the paint if he chooses to paint it. But everything in that little scenario belongs to the potter and he can choose on any given day to make a vase or a chamber pot, Trust me, I get it, though. sounds weird to call people chamber pots. First of all, Paul did it first. We think that's what he's getting at when he talks about vessels for dishonorable use. But secondly, and maybe more importantly, that how dare you that wells up in that moment, where do you think that comes from? Where do you think that comes from? Like where do you think that sense of offense is actually rooted in? Because I promise you, if you keep tracing it back and back and back to the source, you're eventually going to come to some kind of cultural thing that sounds really nice to us that completely ignores what the Bible actually says is our reality standing in front of a holy God. It just is. Paul reads us like a book, man. He sees right through us and he calls us out. He calls us out. No one, no one, not me, not you, not that neighbor down the street that you don't know. No one deserves anything but wrath from a good God. All men are without excuse, right? But some, oh guys, some receive mercy. Mercy. No lump of clay deserves anything but to be made, shaped for dishonorable use. But the potter, some, the potter chooses to make The vase? Is he not God? Does not the potter have the right to do what pleases him with his clay? Which leads us to verse 24. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant, a small group of them, will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Verse 29, and as as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Paul walks briefly through Old Testament history again, right? But this time it's in the the era leading up really close to the Babylonian exile. So they hadn't quite gotten there yet, but that's what's coming. And the main idea, the main theme of what God is doing in that moment is that in God's goodness, God saves some. He saves some of those who deserve nothing from him. They don't deserve salvation. Most of Israel was destroyed, but there was. Guys, there was a remnant. That remnant didn't offer anything back to God that God needed. Because God is good, because God is merciful, because God wanted to show his goodness and his mercy. He chose to save some. Otherwise, if he had not, his covenant people would have fared no differently than Sodom and Gomorrah. Complete and utter destruction. The remnant didn't deserve his mercy, but he is good. He is good, and they remain. But not only did God preserve a remnant for his glory, guys, he's, he's also folding in another nation. He's folding in the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And so Paul points to Hosea, right? He quotes him. A people who were not my people shall be called my people. Now, that wasn't Hosea's original message. He was speaking to uh, Jewish people in that moment. But Paul is smart. Paul's speaking for God. And so Paul takes liberty to apply this to his situation. And this brings us back to the part where, that Paul was so heartbroken about we've come full circle now, out of of all the people of the earth who should have known, uh, who had the opportunity to to see what God is doing and respond to what, what God is doing, the Jews just didn't get it. They just didn't get it. They tried to stand on their own righteousness and you can't impress God with your own righteousness. It's pathetic and not enough. They can't do it. And so in verse 30, Paul says this, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it is, uh, but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written: "Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame." Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God and for them is that they may be saved. Chapter ten, verse two: For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul says that the point of the law was to lead them to the only one who could actually live up to the law. Jesus Christ, the righteous. But instead of trusting Jesus, they rejected him. They stumbled over him, and in their rejection, they fail. Why? Because law-keeping, law-keeping without faith will never, ever succeed. It will always fail. You cannot please God based on your works, because your works are hopelessly insufficient. You need Jesus. All men are without excuse. We are separated from God because of our sin, but Jesus came to live the life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He lived, he lived perfectly obedient to the Father. He died on the cross as a sacrifice to pay the debt that our sin owes, and he was raised from the dead as a vindication of his righteousness and the promise of our future resurrection too. And now he calls on those who have ears to hear to repent of their sin and respond to him in faith. And so if, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, guys, this is your opportunity to respond. This is the opportunity that he's giving you. And so I'm gonna pray and we're gonna sing. Uh, well, I'll be down front here if you want somebody to walk you through that, what that response of faith looks like. But listen, you don't need a priest. You don't need some mediator other than the God who stepped in himself to reconcile you to himself. He wants you. He wants you to be known by Him, and to know Him. But I'm here to help. If you're here this morning, you're already a follower of Jesus. You can respond to God's Word, too. And you do that by repenting of sin and, and pressing into God, right? You do that by leaning in to what God has revealed Himself about himself in Romans chapter nine. He's sovereign and Lord. He's sovereign and Lord over you and over me and over every other molecule in existence. And so how we see him and how we respond to him kind of matters. Kind of matters. We don't have access to him through any good thing that we have given, but because of the goodness of the potter. Because of the goodness of the potter. So the correct accounting of who we are and who he is guys it'll naturally produce all It just will and so i'm gonna pray and we're gonna sing this time of response isn't just filler that's not what it's there for we're already over time This is an opportunity for us to respond to what we've seen in his word. And guys, the way we respond today is exultant (laughs) worship of a God who chose. Of a God who chose. So I'm gonna pray and we're gonna sing. We'll have some leaders down front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you this morning. But let's all respond to his word today. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for Romans chapter nine as big and as massive and as scary as it is, even the parts we don't like, even the parts that leave us confused, even the parts I wish I could replace, but especially the but especially you who is in every word. God, I know my own heart well enough to know that I kick back against these things not because they don't make sense but because I just don't like them. I like to hang on to a sense of control. I like to hang on to my final decision in things because, you know, I, I ought to. But it's in the moments where I understand who I really am before you that I fall deeper in love with you somehow because in your bigness and in your holiness and in your other thanness, in your righteousness and justice and eminence small little Stephen Woodard finds a savior Help me see that better today through Romans 9. You are big and you are good and you are doing all things for your glory, but that glory gets to include me. Thank you.